Wow. Well, thanks for uh, coming out on a Saturday morning. Um, our goal really for events like this is that, like Jordan said, it'll be three hours. There'll be a lot of content. Um, in a lot of ways, we may be jumping into a bit of a deeper end of a pool that you may not be used to swimming in. But the goal really is that you would walk away uh, basically wishing that this would have actually been longer and that there would have actually been more. And so my goal in these two sessions is uh, fairly simple. And what I want to do is I want to define some categories for you. I want to cultivate a hunger within you. You're going to walk away probably wishing that we could have expounded more on a lot of things that we talked about. And we're not going to be able to be exhaustive, okay? We have three hours for some major topics. But really, so to kind of like whet your appetite, like you walk out of here going, man, I really want to learn more about that thing. Um, and then also to instill some confidence that as you walk out of here, you're not just wanting to learn more, but you at least have a few little like tangible handles that you can take with you as you interact with your friends and your, fa and your family and your neighbors. So uh, the first topic we have this morning is on the subject of deconstruction. Now, how many of you have heard of deconstruction, deconstructionism, things like that? Maybe you have had friends. Maybe you yourself are walking through a season where you feel as though you're deconstructing your faith. Maybe you have some doubts and some questions. So deconstruction, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a moving goalpost. And so I'm going to try to define something that will likely change uh, within, you know, three months. The definition of this could change a little bit. But what deconstruction is, is it's a dismantling of the Christian worldview so that core Christian beliefs are undermined or abandoned altogether, leaving those who have deconstructed their faith with a Christianity that looks nothing like biblical Orthodox Christianity. So what deconstruction is, is it's a, an undermining or an abandoning of core central Orthodox Christian doctrines and beliefs. Now, some who have deconstructed their faith who are, or who are deconstructing their faith will still claim to be Christians. And I'm not trying to cast into doubt if you, have, if you have doubts of your faith or you're walking through a season where you are just unsure and you're not quite sure if, if, if you're even a Christian anymore. I'm not trying to uh, say that, well, when, if you have doubts, you're therefore not a Christian. But what I am saying is that many who have deconstructed their faith have then reconstructed a, what they would call a Christian faith that actually looks nothing like biblical Christianity or what we see in Scripture. And I think a, a helpful quote comes from uh, Dean Insera, so I-N-S-E-R-A. He wrote a book called The Unsaved Christian. And in that book, he says this. He says, self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender are not worshiping the God of the Bible, no matter how much they claim to love Jesus. Which, which is simply to say this, is that you can claim to be a Christian, but at the end of the day, it is God who defines through his word what it means to be a Christian. In other words, we are not the ones who get to define what a faithful biblical orthodox faith looks like. That is actually defined for us in scripture. And as we deviate from that, we may still call ourselves Christians, but we will actually end up being nothing like the Christians that the Bible describes. Now, that's deconstruction. Now, that is very different. I want to create two categories for you. There's deconstruction, an abandoning or undermining of Orthodox Christian belief, but there's also something else that we all should actively be doing, and that is disenculturation. Deconstruction, 
disenculturation. Now, what is disenculturation? Disenculturation is something that we should be doing actively as we walk through the scriptures and we get to understand more of who God is and what he has said. What disenculturation is, is what it does is it affirms historic Christian beliefs, but also acknowledges the serious issues that the church needs to address. Affirms historic Christian beliefs, but also is not naive to the reality that there are many ways in which the Christian faith or those who claim to be Christians or the churches that claim to be uh, biblical Christian churches, that there are still many issues that we need to address and to resolve and to walk in accordance with our faith. I'll give you an example. Uh, One thing, this may seem like a trivial example, I don't know your context, but one thing that can be very easy to do is to equate uh, church Christian culture with biblical Christianity. Here's one way that that can happen. Uh, Let's just say uh, the use of alcohol. So what some Christian cultures can do is they can see the biblical command to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. And the the biblical principle of temperance, so in other words, don't don't get drunk, they will take that and they will then uh, take that so far to go complete abstinence from alcohol is the only way to live a biblical, faithful Christian life. And so then they will begin to assess everyone else around them according to that standard, saying, well, you're not supposed to get drunk, therefore you shouldn't drink. And then it will create a culture where eventually you end up having all of these extra biblical expectations that actually are not found in the scriptures, where you begin to elevate matters of conscience to to matters of historic biblical orthodox. And what can happen is is that personal views and personal opinions and matters of uh, personal preference gets so conflated to the level of biblical conviction that it can be very easy to, uh, to mistake in the two. And so what disenculturation does is it goes, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible actually say? And how is that different than the degree to which our culture and community holds on to these extra biblical values? What the Bible actually says is don't get drunk. It does not say never have a drop of alcohol. And not only that, but then uh, be dogmatic with everyone who does drink and tell them that they are in sin simply because uh, they are not abstaining totally. We need to disenculturate as opposed to deconstruct. Now, uh, what I want to do is I want to walk through a few reasons uh, for deconstruction for those who will deconstruct their faith. And then I want to give you eight pillars of deconstructionism. These aren't the only eight. These aren't the only core uh, beliefs or beliefs that are questioned within those who are deconstructing their faith, but I think they are a helpful aid. So three reasons that people will tend to begin to deconstruct their faith. The first one are intellectual reasons. Intellectual reasons. And what that is is that um, people who are having difficulty answering really hard questions, and often what will happen is that as they have these really hard questions that they're looking for answers they will tend to also be in context, church context, faith communities that don't know what to do with those questions. And so therefore they feel very ostracized from their faith community because they feel as though if I ask this question, people in my connection group are gonna look at me like I'm crazy. And, and likely, they, and part of that is because they probably don't have an answer for it. And so they'll keep those questions to themselves and then begin to pull away from that faith community and begin to deconstruct their faith in isolation. So intellectual reasons. The second reason why people will tend to deconstruct their faith is for emotional reasons. It's interesting. If you, if you listen to or read a lot of people's, uh, you could say, testimonies who have deconstructed their faith, many, um, 
almost all, all the ones that I have read, there's probably a 1% out there that this isn't the case, but almost all of the stories of people who have deconstructed their faith begin with a story, not of intellectual wrestlings that they had, but actually with a bad experience they had in the church or a bad experience they had with someone who claimed to be a Christian. That was deeply hurtful to them, and it actually caused them to begin to question the whole framework of the Christian faith. So you have intellectual reasons, you have emotional reasons. And then the third one I'm, I'm going to call aspirational reasons. So the aspirational reasons why someone would deconstruct their faith, I think, I think the Bible says this really well, as the Bible often does. In Romans chapter 1, where Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And here's the key. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How is that relevant? I have found that many people who reject biblical Orthodox Christianity don't usually start to reject it because of intellectual reasons, and, and at times don't even start to reject it because of emotional reasons, but often people will begin to deconstruct their faith and reject biblical Christianity because they want to do something or live in a certain way that God says no. And at the end of the day, don't we all want to do what we want to do? Us Westerners especially really don't like being told what to do. And so instead of submitting ourselves to the word of God, instead of trusting that God is the one who actually defines what true human flourishing looks like, we want to do what we want to do. We want to desire what we want to desire. We want to act on those desires. And in, in wanting to do that, we'll begin to, uh, we'll begin to push the Bible aside and deconstruct a biblical faith that is contrary to the, des to the desires that we already want to express. It's interesting uh, Sometimes, sometimes when I talk to students um, and these big doubts kind of are being cultivated in their life, um, an interesting question to ask is, hey, uh, when these doubts started to, of your faith started to come up, how closely did those doubts start to come up in relation to you sleeping with your girlfriend? And often, they're very closely connected. Which means that many people will deconstruct their faith for aspirational reasons, because we want to do things that God says no to. Now, those are three reasons. So I want to get into eight pillars of deconstruction. And you can think of these pillars kind of like dominoes, okay? Uh, and I mean in the sense that this very first pillar, often when this pillar falls, the others will pretty... Uh, quickly and successively fall with it. So um, eight pillars of deconstruction, eight issues that those who are deconstructing their faith are generally wrestling with or trying to do away with. The first one is the Bible. The first one is the Bible. And we're going to look at some of these more in depth than others uh, simply for the sake of time because I'm sure you would like to not eat lunch right where you're sitting right here. So uh, we'll try to get through these and then we'll have a Q&A afterwards here. So the first one is the Bible. Namely, the criticism here of the Bible is that the Bible is filled with errors and contradictions and therefore shouldn't be taken literally or seen as absolutely authoritative. 
Maybe you've heard this in some of your some of your classes here on campus where, well, the Bible is just full of errors. There are more errors in the Bible than there are verses. You can't actually take it literally. Maybe it might be helpful in some ways for you to maybe live a somewhat moral life, but it's really a book of mythology and you can't trust it uh, to really be a guiding authority in your life. This is the domino that if this one falls, the other ones will inevitably tend to fall with it. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this particular um, threat to our faith? What do we do with this, this particular question? Can we trust our Bibles? That's the big question. And you might want to write this down on your notes. The answer to that question is yes. <laughs> you might be able to remember that. Yes, you can trust your Bibles. And I'm not going to... Uh, there's a whole section on internal reasons why you can trust your Bibles and circular reasoning and how to combat that. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, a few reasons, though, why you can trust your Bible. I'll, I'll give you this. I'll give you the external reasons why you can trust your Bible. Firstly, is that there are more Greek manuscripts of the New Testament than any other ancient text. You go, why is that important? We'll get to that. The average ancient text has fewer than 20 copies. While... The New Testament alone has over 5,800 copies and counting. Now, why is this important? This is important because when determining the accuracy of historical documents, the number of copies of that document that you have, the more copies of that document that you have, the better likelihood that you're able to verify what the original documents actually said. Because you can compare them against themselves. So 5,800 copies of the New Testament... The next closest historical document is Homer's Iliad at 1800. So nearly 4,000 more New Testament documents for the New Testament. This combats, by the way, uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, I believe, wrote a book called uh, Misquoting Jesus. You know, uh, some, uh, at least at uh, UNI, that's actually a required textbook in one of their religion classes. And what he argues is that, well, you can't trust your Bible because the Bible is transmitted like a bad game of telephone. Like the disciples... Uh, wrote something down, and then they gave it to someone else, and then that person made a copy, and then they gave it to someone else. That person. It's kind of like if I said something over here, and then by the time it got over here, it would say something totally different. That would make sense, and that makes sense in our experience in elementary school. It's kind of a fun game to play. The problem with that is that it totally misrepresents and misunderstands the way that that texts were actually copied in the ancient world. They weren't making copies of the copies as much and as often as they could. They were making copies based on the original. And so it wouldn't be me saying something to one person and then they transmitting that and the next person and then the next person and the next person. It would be if I told something to one person and then all of you went to that one person and asked them what I said. You would get a much more accurate representation of what I actually said using that method than the telephone method. That second method that I described, you going to the one person, is the way that ancient texts were most often copied. And this is why airmen is wrong. Another reason, a vast majority, you say, but aren't there still discrepancies in the Bible? Uh, some would say there's more, there's more errors in the Bible than there are verses. And technically, that is true. But here's where that statement is deceiving. It's because 99% of scribal discrepancies, so mistakes that the scribes made as they were copying the ancient texts, 99% of those scribal discrepancies consist of things like spelling errors, 
word order. So instead of Jesus Christ, I might say Christ Jesus. The use of the definite article and proper names. So instead of saying John, it'll say the John. Or repeated lines and sentences. That's 99% of the errors that exist in the Bible, which, by the way, 99% of those errors are cleared up because of, the, because of the preponderance of manuscripts that we have to compare them against each other with. And so you go, well, that's 99%. What about the 1%? Isn't that still a problem? Here's the thing. The other 1% of errors in your Bible are, you're told that they're there. Like, the translators put footnotes and brackets. They have gone out of their way to show us the, the few areas in Scripture where there are some discrepancies that they don't quite know what to do with. For example, the absence of John chapter 5, verse 4. Maybe you didn't know this. John chapter 5 goes from verse 3 to verse 5. There is no verse 4. They tell you that. They didn't just pretend like verse 4 existed. Sorry, it just, that sentence isn't there. The woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, it's actually disputed whether or not that was in some of the original manuscripts. And you'll see that either as a footnote in your Bible or in brackets right, or at the beginning of John chapter 8. Like they tell you that. The long ending of the book of Mark. The, the translators tell you, that. in other words, what I'm saying is that if the translators were trying to pull a fast one on us, they wouldn't be so transparent about the issues that actually exist in notable places. So for the 1% of discrepancies that do exist in your Bible, we're told about it. Now here's another thing. All that being the case, no discrepancy in Scripture threatens a major doctrine of Scripture. The Michael Kruger, the, the little yellow book you got, that's a fantastic book. You can read it in one sitting. I'd encourage you to do that. Um, Michael Kruger says this. He says, no unsolved textual variant places a significant doctrine in jeopardy. It's not as though we have brackets or footnotes around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That every disputed area, every variant or textual issue in Scripture, actually, if, if you took it out entirely, there would be no significant doctrine of the Christian faith that would be threatened. So that's the first pillar. We're going to go a little faster with some of these. So you're like, oh my gosh, I did not plan all day. So uh, pillar number one, the Bible. Pillar number two, the church. This speaks to the emotional reasons that we talked about for why many will deconstruct their faith. This is the, uh, maybe you've seen the hashtag church hurt movement, the ex-evangelical movement, that people with experiences of abuse or feelings of hurt from being labeled a heretic for having uh, massive questions regarding the Christian faith, people who, who may have been pushed out of their faith community context for, for wrestling with homosexual desires, or people who, who have a disillusionment with Christianity in that it seems to be uh, inextricably married with the Republican Party. I'm not going to get into all of that pillar, but I will just say, in many ways... Negative church experiences, uh, I say fair enough. 
and that what these experiences should cause us to do is it should cause us to be a bit introspective in the ways that are helpful and appropriate in our churches, and we should be able to ask ourselves as a church, how can we do better? How can we do better to be a place where people who have big questions regarding their faith actually feel as though they can ask those questions? How can we do better when our, our, our brothers and sisters who are struggling with homosexual desires do not feel as though they are left out in the dark, but actually feel as though they are in a place where they can have robust Christian community? How can we help our brothers and sisters not equate a Christian faith with a Republican vote at the ballot box? How can we, how can we separate these two things in such a way that is helpful? I say fair enough. So second pillar is the church. Third pillar, you're going to go, what the heck? So penal substitutionary atonement. You're like, this, this, was one of, this was a $10 phrase that Jordan was talking about. So penal substitutionary atonement, you go, what in the world is that? What penal substitutionary atonement is, is it's a theological phrase that describes what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection. And here, here's, here's what it means. It means that Jesus took the penalty for sin, so that's penal, penalty. Jesus took the penalty for sin, in the place of sinners, so substitutionary, to satisfy God's wrath towards sin and demand for justice in order to forgive sinners and bring them back into relationship with God. That's atonement. Penalty of sin in the place of sinners to bring them back into right relationship with God. Penal substitutionary atonement. Now, some of you might go, okay, like what is the problem with that? The, the accusation leveled at this doctrine, often by those who are deconstructing their faith, is that the doctrine, specifically the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, is equated with being, uh, you'll often hear the, the, the phrase cosmic child abuse, that it's, it's this idea of this bloodthirsty God who requires blood sacrifice, who forces Jesus to go to the cross and atone for the sins of many. How could a loving God do that? You see, many deconstructionists would say, that Jesus may have needed to die, but it wasn't to appease the wrath of God because God is not a wrathful God. God is a loving God. But instead, Jesus' death was to show his love for us and to give us an example of how to forgive others. Now, progressive Christian leaders, and this is what I, I steal that from uh, Kruger's uh, description. Progressive Christian leaders abundantly agree that Jesus didn't die to pay any penalty for sin but instead that the, reason, that the reason Jesus died was because of an angry mob because he was speaking truth to power. In this view, Jesus didn't die, Jesus didn't submit himself to the will of the Father, but instead he submitted himself to the will of an angry mob. Now, why is this? There are many ways that the Bible speaks about the atonement of Jesus Christ. There are many ways that the Bible speaks about what Jesus accomplished uh, when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Why in the world is penal substitutionary atonement the specific description of what he accomplished? Why is that the specific one that gets, uh, that gets attacked? Why is that? It's because penal substitutionary atonement necessitates that God is a God of wrath and that God is a God of judgment. But if you can erase penal substitutionary atonement, then you get to erase God's holiness 
and therefore his holy expectations towards sinful people. That's why. But here's the thing. What do we say to that? The reality is that a God without wrath is ultimately a God without justice. See, many of our non-Christian friends, many of our non-Christian families, family members, really, really care about justice. Really, really care that, that wrong things are made right. And the reality is, though, is that a God without wrath will end up being a God who is unjust. Uh, Miroslav Volf, who's a professor at Yale, he put it this way. He's, he's from uh, former Yugoslavia. Here's what he said. He said, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, and some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparent fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. You see, neutering God of his wrath by doing away with the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement is not only logically inconsistent, and it's not only existentially unsatisfying, but it's also theologically incorrect. And here, here's one of the reasons why. It's because Jesus Christ himself taught the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Here's how. If you, if you have a Bible, uh, Isaiah chapter 53. So back you go, how did Jesus teach this? From, like, this is the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't there. Hang with me. What, what, one thing that's helpful to know is that... Uh, uh, in, in Jewish teaching, in, in, in Jewish dialogue, often when a verse of Scripture from the Old Testament is quoted, it assumes that, you want, that the person hearing that verse actually recognizes, like understands what the context of that verse actually was. Because they know their Old Testament super well. So Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, and then verse 12. So here's what it says. It says, this is the prophet Isaiah, Yet he himself bore our sickness, and he carried our pains. Remember, penal substitutionary atonement. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went, went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished, the Lord has punished him for the iniquity, for the sin of us all. And then fast forward to verse 12. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death, and he was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many 
and interceded for the rebels. That's Isaiah chapter 53. Fast forward to Luke chapter 22, and here's what Jesus says in verse 37. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. And what is Jesus quoting in Luke chapter 22? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 53, saying that all of that that was spoken about this this sin that would be placed on the back of the Messiah, that the wrath that this person would absorb on behalf of those who were rebels, who was this talking about? Jesus Christ is saying, Isaiah was talking about me. I am the one who's going to pay the penalty for the sin of those who are sinners in their place so that they may have righteousness. You see, penal substitutionary atonement wasn't invented in the 11th century, but it's found 700 years before the birth of Christ, right there in Isaiah. And knowing this, Jesus directly connects Isaiah's words to who he is and what he was about to do. Jesus himself taught that he was going to take the penalty of sin in the place of sinners to satisfy God's wrath. So that's pillar number three. Pillar number four, this is going to be the the whole second session. It's sexuality. Uh, the, The those deconstructing their faith downplay or redefine the Bible's approach to human sexuality by, by explaining away that homosexuality is a sin or by redefining the sinful expression of homosexuality, not as like the act, but as an expression of power. In other words, uh, the, way, the, way that, um, the way that unbiblical sexuality is uh, justified is that, well, it's, it's simply a matter, it's, it's really a matter of consent. That you're only sinning in your sexuality if the person that you are expressing your sexuality with does not consent to that. We'll get into that in the, in the second breakout here. Fifth pillar that often comes up, fifth doctrine you could say, is complementarianism. Now this is the doctrine that, that men and women are created equal in value and yet have been given by God different roles uh, uniquely within the church and within the home. We'll speak a little to this in the next session as well. Uh, this doctrine is viewed as regressive. It's often viewed as oppressive. And I will say, to be fair, complementarianism has uh, at times, unfortunately, been a Trojan horse used within the church to justify chauvinism, to be an overextension, an overapplication that basically can exclude women from Uh, from vital positions of leadership within the church where it is biblically permissible. And so often women are, I say often, at times, women are unfairly and unjustly treated within the church because those who are leading within the church think that they're being complementarian when actually they're being chauvinistic. So in some ways I will say, fair enough. And yet, the reality is still that God creates men and women equal in value and does, though, give them different roles within the home and within the church. And it's our job to see what does the Bible actually say and then disenculturate how that can often look and go, how, does this, how is this faithfully expressed in the home and in the church in such a way that the Bible commands, but it also allows for the permissions that the Bible allows? 
So complementarianism. The sixth pillar, suffering in the world. This is the question. If God is good, why do innocent children suffer? It's the question. It's, it's, the, it's the conundrum of either God is all-powerful but uncaring, or God cares tremendously but isn't all-powerful. If God is so good, and if God is all-powerful, why in the world is there tremendous suffering in the world? Uh, met several people that, uh, that I've walked with who have been deconstructing their faith um, often are coming out of times and seasons in their life of tremendous tragedy. And this tends to be the thing that sparks that process because they cannot reconcile how a loving God would allow them to go through such horrific things. Number seven, uh, the doctrine of eternal torment. So the argument is, is that the doctrine of hell is simply a scare tactic used by those in control and by those in leadership of the church to maintain power. It claims that the Old Testament never mentions hell, that the doctrine of eternal torment was uh, originated in the intertestamental period. So basically saying, uh, the only reason why the doctrine of hell exists is so that Christian leaders who basically just want your money and your obedience will scare you into following them. That's basically the accusation. Now, one thing that's interesting here is that this aversion to the doctrine of divine judgment is not actually universally held. You see, to us expressively individualistic Westerners, divine judgment is supremely offensive. Whereas, in other parts of the world, the notion of forgiving one's enemies is supremely offensive. You see, in many places of the world, the whole doctrine of a God of judgment is second nature. It makes all the sense in the world. It's totally accepted. Of course, if God is God, then he has the right and the responsibility to judge evil. I can square with that. Wait, forgive my enemy 70 times 7? In many parts of the world, that's the crazy part of Christianity. And yet we go, we love forgiveness because we love getting away with things, don't we? We love the doctrine of forgiveness generally, right? But then it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. God's a God of wrath? What are you talking about? The aversion to divine judgment is not universally held. So the question then is why should we conclude that our Western sensibilities are better than non-Western sensibilities? Here's something to ponder. If God truly transcends cultures, if God truly transcends time and place, wouldn't it make all the sense in the world that we should expect that God would offend every human culture at some point? For us, it's the doctrine of hell. That's, that's one of the offensive parts of who God is. For other parts of the world, it's actually the doctrine of forgiveness. The very doctrine that we like. And as we mentioned before, God without wrath is ultimately God without justice. Uh, Miroslav Volf, again, in, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he says this. He says uh, that it's for this reason that a lack of belief in God secretly nourishes violence. You say, how, how is that possible? How, how can a lack of belief in God secretly nourish violence? Isn't, isn't Christianity like the one that, that creates bigotry? Isn't Christianity the one that creates exclusion? Isn't Christianity the one that creates like all of this hurt? Here's how. A lack of belief in God secretly nourishes violence because if there is no ultimate hope that one day God will right all wrongs, then it's up to us. 
to exact vengeance. If there is no hope that one day God, who sees the evils of our world and who sees the evils that are done to you, there is no hope that he will one day make all the wrong things right, then it is now placed into our hands to bring about vengeance. Now, many people think that a belief in God who ultimately judges people and makes society less peaceful when it's the reality that a lack of belief in God that leads to a more brutal society who takes matters into their own hands. And so what about the doctrine of hell? What do we do with that? Um, where does the Bible speak of hell? I'm going to rattle through this. I don't have much left, so thank you for hanging in there. But in Revelation 21.8, what does the Bible have to say about hell? It says that it is a lake of burning sulfur, Revelation 21.8. It says that everlasting destruction and banishment from the presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Jude, cha- uh, Jude chapter 7, there's one chapter in Jude. Jude verse 7 <laughs> says that, uh, that, that hell is punishment of eternal fire, Revelation 20. It's a lake of fire. Revelation 14, it's the wine of God's wrath which is torment with fire. You go, okay, that's great. Uh, What about Jesus? Jesus says that hell is a place of eternal punishment, Matthew 25. Jesus says that it's a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 13. Jesus says that it's a place where the fire never goes out, Matthew 9. Jesus says that it's a place of outer darkness, Matthew 8. You go, how in the world can these descriptions of fire and darkness both coexist? How can fire and darkness coexist? My take on the doctrine of hell as it's described in scripture is that these descriptions of hell are actually metaphorical and you could say oh great it's metaphorical that means hell doesn't exist and i go no no no. the reason why i think the descriptions of hell in scripture are metaphorical is because the horrors of hell exceed our human language to be able to describe it hell is actually worse than what the bible describes Now, when it comes to the the idea of hell, I think part of the reason why this is such an offensive doctrine to us is because what we have in our mind is that God gives people a certain amount of time to believe, and then at great surprise to them, the clock runs out, they die, and God banishes them to an eternity in hell, and they fall into the pit of hell crying out for mercy, and God's like, no, 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 too late, no soup for you. Like, the clock has run out, you've run out of time, you had your chance, and now I have surprised you with death, and you have, you have no more opportunity. That's the way that many of us think of, of the way that this works, of the way that God works. And that's part of why it feels so like offensive, like, God, well, give us some heads up here. Give us another chance at least, right? This is such a surprise. It's a picture of God sending people to an eternity apart from him when, what, when that wasn't what they wanted at all. But here's the problem with that is that that view of hell assumes that people want God. Here's the thing. Everyone wants God's benefits. They want peace, happiness, tranquility, no more crying, no more pain, reunion with loved ones. But here's the thing. The gospel is not first and foremost an offer of God's benefits. The gospel is first and foremost the offer of God himself. 
in Luke chapter 16, I don't have time to read it for you, but uh, it, Jesus describes the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. If you don't know what that is, go to Luke chapter 16, read that. But it's basically this story of there's a rich man and there's Lazarus who was a poor man who wanted to eat the scraps from this rich man's table. Fast forward, they both have died. And the rich man is now in hell crying out for, uh, for relief from his pain. And this is what is interesting is that he he said he tells Lazarus, "Go get me some water so my pain can be alleviated." And here's what's interesting. The rich man actually never asks to get out of hell. He simply wants Lazarus to go get him a little bit of water so he can be more comfortable where he's at. In other words, he wants the benefits of heaven without the object of heaven. He wants relief from his pain, but is still not interested in the presence of the Lord. So this notion that hell is a place where an unmerciful God sends innocent victims is to totally miss the nature of God and totally miss the nature of people. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book, The Great Divorce. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. How cruel would it be for God to force people to live for an eternity in the next life with the very one they didn't want in this life? Wouldn't that actually be cruel for God to force himself upon you and say, no, you will live with me for an eternity when you spent your whole life saying, I want nothing to do with you? In the end, For people who reject God in this life, God will say, okay, you can have for eternity what you want. And finally, this is the shortest one. The eighth pillar of deconstruction is an elevation of non-essential doctrines. So this is, in essence, a failure to practice theological triage. Some of you are medical students. You understand what triage is. When someone comes in, you're trying to assess the severity to which they are injured or struggling or something like that. And then you place those who are struggling the most, like the most important things that need addressed right now, you put those at the top. And then those of us who come in with like a sore throat, you're like, why did you even come in? Like, just stay at home. You'll be fine. You have a cold. You have a man cold. That's not worth coming to the hospital. You know, it's like you do triage in that. What can happen, and I mentioned this in, the, uh, in talking about you know, the expression of uh, alcohol and disenculturation, is that sometimes there are doctrines that do show up in Scripture that some people or places can so elevate to being first-level doctrines. Like, if you don't believe that the world was created in the literal six days, then how in the world can you be a Christian? And you go, Really? I mean, we can talk about that, like, and we can have opinions on that. We can have opinions on the end times and when Jesus is going to come back and how the church and Israel, la, 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 Like, we can, how closely related, though, are these topics to the gospel? Like, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, like, I deliver to you as of first importance. Like, even Paul himself had a, had a category in his mind that some doctrines are just more important than other doctrines, and yet some places can so elevate every doctrine to being first-ranked doctrines that it can totally turn off an entire generation of people. Because what that does is it expresses actually a lack of discernment and a lack of understanding in the scripture. So how should we move forward? Real quick, how should we move forward? John chapter 20, 
So Thomas, a disciple of Jesus, uh, you might know him as Doubting Thomas, um, he was actually not there when Jesus revealed himself to the disciples. And here's what happened. It says, but Thomas called the twin, that was his nickname, I suppose, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. You could say that Thomas was religiously disappointed. Because think about it. He was one of the 12. He walked with Jesus for years. He saw the miracles. He heard, he heard Jesus teach. He saw all of the things. He had expectations for who Jesus was and was going to be and what he was going to do. And then when Jesus died, all of those expectations came crumbling down. Have you ever been religiously disappointed? Have you ever thought that God wasn't doing what you expected him to do? Have you ever been let down by the church? Have you ever been let down by your Christian friends, by other believers? Like you had these expectations, but then it seemed like God didn't come through. And maybe you've been so let down and so disappointed that you're beginning to question whether this whole Christianity thing is true at all. Maybe you're in that place this morning, or maybe you know someone who is in that place. Guess what? You are not the first one. Because just a handful of days, it's barely been a week since Jesus rose from the dead, and there's already someone just like you, or just like that person you know, who is struggling to believe. Now notice a couple of things about the nature of Thomas's doubt. First, Thomas doubted the very center of the Christian faith. Like I said, 1 Corinthians 15 Paul says that if Christ hasn't been raised, if Christ has not been raised, and if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. The gospel is not only that Jesus died for your sin so that you can go to heaven when you die. It's that Jesus died for your sin and he rose again. Without the resurrection, the gospel is void. And so Thomas is at least doubting what is at the very center of the Christian faith. And so for those of you who are struggling in your faith or those of you who know people who are struggling, come back Deal with the reality of the resurrection first. And then get to the other things. Because if Jesus did rise from the dead, the resurrection doesn't answer every other question, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ informs the answer to every other question you or your friends will have. Second, Thomas's doubt wasn't unconditional. Notice, he doesn't simply say, I'll never believe. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can see. There's nothing you can show me that will make me believe. I am unconvinced of anything, and you will never convince me otherwise. He doesn't say that. No, his doubt was genuine, because genuine doubt is actually willing to consider and receive genuine answers. Thomas had his doubts, but the goalpost didn't keep moving. It wasn't once he got the answer to one question, ah, then what about this? Then what about this? And what about, and it's like, this is a never-ending cycle. I don't know that I'll ever be able to answer every question. You will never be satisfied. Thomas was not, a, was not ever going to be unsatisfied. You see, doubt and cynicism are almost held as badges of honor in our culture today. Like, it's somehow noble to simply be certain that no one can be certain about anything. It almost seems as though for some, the only certainty you have is that there can be no certainty. Which, by the way, makes no sense. Thomas doubted 
but it was about what's central to Christian faith, and it wasn't closed off. It wasn't a no matter what the evidence kind of doubt. But then check this out. This is how we move forward as those deconstructing our faith now or as those who know people who are deconstructing their faith. Verse 26. Check this out. John chapter 20, verse 26. Just the first half of this verse. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Okay. Notice this. In the midst of his doubt, Thomas does not abandon his community. And his community doesn't abandon him. Notice, Thomas just said, guys, you said you've seen the, reason, the risen Christ, you are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. That makes no sense. I don't believe it. I think you're a bit crazy, actually, and until I see it for myself, I'm not going to believe it. And then here he is a week later, still with his friends. And his friends still with him. You see, it can be easy when you're in a season of doubt to, to distance yourself from the community of faith. You stop going to church, you stop going to connection group, you stop, you know, stop engaging in the text thread, stop answering that. You kind of like ghost your faith community. You start to pull away from other believers in your life. And little do you know that just like a zebra out in the open, the most dangerous place for a doubting Christian to be is all alone. Thomas had his doubts, but here he is, still with the disciples. He doesn't abandon his community. And notice, his community doesn't abandon him. I have made this mistake in the past where I thought that my doubting friends, that the main thing and the only thing they needed was more information. Like, oh, you have these questions. Here's this book. Here's this podcast. Here's this clip to watch. And while all of that is good, like, we do, we, we do need to study with our friends. We do need to, like, pursue answers to questions well, all that is good, though. What we also need in addition to information is someone who will walk by our side, who will still be a friend to us in the midst of our doubts, and who, who will walk with us as we struggle to find genuine answers to our genuine questions. You see, our friends who are struggling don't only need information, they need incarnation. They need you to be the hands and feet of Jesus the tangible expression of his presence, the tangible expression of his love and his kindness towards you in the midst of doubting, to be patient with them, to challenge them, to think with them, to read with them, to enter into the struggle with them. Now, this isn't to say that we celebrate doubt. We don't celebrate doubt, but we also shouldn't abandon the doubters. But instead, we must pull our friends close to us, our doubting friends close to us, and enter into the struggle because we believe that there are good answers to their good questions. Thomas doesn't abandon his community, and his community doesn't abandon him. So for those of you this morning who maybe you're in that place of struggling with your faith, take it from Thomas. Don't abandon your community. Tell someone you're struggling. Let's be a place. Let's be a ministry. Let's be a church where it is okay to say, I'm not quite sure. I'm really struggling with this. 
Don't abandon your community. And for those of you who know people who are struggling, take it from the disciples. Don't abandon the doubters, but come close to them. Walk with them. Challenge them. This isn't to say you just affirm them in their doubt, but love them enough to walk with them in the process. And if you read the rest of Thomas's experience, it's as he is in the context of community that Jesus meets him where he's at. This is kind of our panel that we've got. I'll, I'll be kind of moderating the questions. I told these guys, I mean, Jake doesn't have the hardest job. I have the hardest job filtering through all of these things. What he did was easy, you know. That's so true. Uh, so yeah. true. Um, no, but this, you guys met Jake. Um, Gwen, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? And Paul, say what you want about yourself. So, <laughs> oh, you want me to say about A little bit of who you are. And, 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 and you know, you said, uh, you emailed me and said, hey, I've kind of been on a one-year journey with this kind of content. And so maybe explain just a little bit of that real briefly, yeah. All right, my name is Gwen Nelson. I'm a mom of seven kiddos. Um, I have walked uh, in this research of this deconstructing thing for over a year because I had a friend who was walking through some stuff and um, together we walked through this to learn about it to get her back under the authority of the Bible. And so I'm excited that Jake is here teaching this because I think this is a big thing in our culture these days and um, I'm excited to see what God does here. Yeah, and I'm Paul, and one of, serve as one of the elders and pastors, but I'll say this real quick about Gwen. You know, we have an elder team um, that leads the church, but we also highly value um, gifted women and godly women and smart people and that, that provide us a vantage point that's different than the one that we have. And uh, weekly, Gwen jumps into a piece of that elder meeting just to interact with us feedback-wise on messages that are preached every weekend. So uh, we really value Gwen just jumping up for this because uh, each week we, uh, we interact with her on feedback and research that she's doing on messages. So that's really a lot of fun. Yeah. Anyways. All right. You guys ready? Let's dive in. All right. The first one um, is pretty simple. Who would win in an arm wrestle between Jake and Paul? Josiah, stop sending texts in questions. You're done. Um, <laughs> I think Paul. Yeah. I'd go with you, Jake. No, 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 no. Because here's why. Like... <laughs> oh my gosh, we abandoned the Q&A for these two to arm wrestle. Right oh my god. No, here's why. <laughs> Paul, got... Paul's more competitive than I am. That so is you true. would that you would true. fight you would go to the death. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a true statement. You would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you would. I agree you would that. gnaw my arm off. Yeah. Like before you'd let me win. Yeah. yeah that's why you'd win. <laughs> All right. So, questions are flying in and talk about a moving target. These keep changing on me. All right. I see a couple here um, about uh, abortion. How can I approach the topic of abortion with someone who is very against it and asking me about it? So I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're going, yeah, sexuality is part of that. But I think, like, abortion is one of those things, like, uh, I need a good answer on that one if I'm going to follow your God, I think is maybe what they're saying. So um, do you guys have any quick thoughts on that, how to approach that issue? Yeah, uh, gently, tenderly, but with truth. You know, I was reading just this morning in the scriptures um, a reaffirmation of God creating people in his image, right? Um, it was Genesis 6. That would say that I'm a few days behind in my Bible reading, but I caught up. Um, but, you know, after the original creation of man and the flood comes as mankind was put back on the earth, God makes it very clear that he made people in his image. And uh, the reality of the issue of abortion is um, the, the question you ask is, what is that thing? You know, I heard a, a gentleman speak and said, uh, you know, your kid comes running in the back door, and before you even see him, they say, Mommy, Daddy, can I kill it? 
And the real question is, what are we talking about? If it's a mosquito, absolutely. Kill it. What if it's a small animal? What if it's another? What if it's a sibling? You know, the question is, what is it? And I think, the, and I think uh, apologists, not just the scriptures, but even people who help me to, to process uh, life is to say, when does human life begin? And, I, and when does a person become a person? Is it in proximity to a womb, to birth? And it seems like I, I don't know of any other logical, biological, or ethical way um, to define humanity other than conception. It is where a one blood type, one gene type, and another one come together, and a completely third distinct person is formed. And from that point, it's just a matter of growth in that in that little person's being. And so um, I always go back to what is it, and when did it become what it is? And I don't know how to, to, to define that outside of conception uh, itself. And so at the point of humanity, we are called to protect image bearers, an age range from conception all the way to the most elderly that maybe cost family a lot of money and, and require a lot of service and have unique special needs. All the way in that age range, we're called to protect image bearers. Um, yeah, so I, I, Yeah, that's great. So I, I'll give one quick thought and then we'll go to the next thing. I, I just think, guys, when I'm like teaching and we're talking about the sanctity of life, I'm also very aware that there's likely people and maybe some here today that have had an abortion in your past. And to, to me, I just want to be very gentle and tender as a pastor and go, you, you have to understand the doctrine of forgiveness. Mm. That, 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 that is not this unforgivable sin or thing that you've done in the past that cannot be restored, that, that, that God brings beauty from ashes. So anyways, that's pastorally. I, I always try to think through that. All right. Uh, this is what kind of speaks to one of your pillars. What advice would you have for someone who is struggling understanding why God would allow tragedy and believes blessings and status in life are random? Yeah, I think most people don't have as much of a problem with suffering as they do unexplained suffering. So we can understand if someone dies trying to save someone else's life, that we have an ability to reconcile that in our mind uh, because we can understand the purposes like for why that person died. Whereas it, it seems to be the randomness, the apparent randomness um, of suffering that can really hang us up. And so uh, one thing, and, and th this is more of a, of, a, of a reason given for, uh, oh, what would you say, the, the validity of all belief systems that maybe you've heard the, the elephant in the dark kind of thing where um, uh, God is like an elephant and all of us are like a bunch of blind men and, and we're just all feeling different parts of the elephant, right? And well, God's like, God's really, you know, long and flexible because he's feeling the trunk. No, and the other one's like, no, no, God's like solid and stumpy. And the other one's like, no, God's like small and fuzzy. Like, and it's like, well, all belief systems are the same because, you know, everyone's just feeling different parts of the elephant, you know. The problem with that is that that assumes that you are the one who can see the whole elephant. Like, that assumes that you are the one with the perspective to be able to recognize the blindness of everyone else. And I'd say with suffering as well, um, in struggling with suffering, just because you can't see a reason for it doesn't mean there isn't one. And so trust in a God who is greater than your understanding of your suffering. You know, what, what Paul says is not that, that all things work for the good of those who love, him, who love God. He doesn't say that. He says all things work together. 
for the good of those who love him. And the way that I've explained that to my daughter, she loves to cook. And so uh, as we're baking cookies, I'll say, is baking soda good by itself? And we'll try it. And it's like, not really. It's a little salty. Like, what? You're not going to just have that, you know? Like, salt, good by itself. Sugar, yeah, maybe. But eventually you're like, well, you know, like flour. Like, there's a lot of ingredients that go into many of the things we bake that in and of themselves are not good by themselves. But when, you, when they are worked together, they form something that's delicious and beautiful. And that, and, and so to people who are suffering with unexplained suffering, like one of the things I try to remind them is that uh, what you're going through right now, though in and of itself feels terrible, trust in a God who is able and that we know takes these things that by themselves are terrible and works them together for the good of those who love him. Like, you don't know what God is baking yet in your life. And honestly, you may never know. Uh, you may be a small piece of a greater story that God is working out in human history. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> question here, how have you seen the church mishandle how they approach people going through deconstructing their faith? Maybe Gwen, in your journey, I mean, yeah. how, how have you seen this go wrong? Or maybe go, oh, I kind of like... Kind of gone. If I were to do this, I would do that over again or approach this differently. I think where we go wrong is we fear when people doubt. So if someone comes to you with doubt or concerns or they're walking through something and you see that they're heading in a wrong path, what we do wrong is we fear their doubt. And instead of like what he said, jump in with them, be there to walk alongside them, help them through it. I think that right there is where we go wrong is we just don't join in. And um, I think having that understanding that they're coming from something, they're coming from somewhere, they have a worldview and their worldview matters. And so figure out where that is, what they're actually trying to walk through or process and jump in with them. Yeah, I, I would just add, um, I really appreciate what Gwen said. And I took, when I was taking notes, I put a little star next to this idea. Doubt does not mean denial. And Jake used the word deconstruction a lot, and I appreciate it. I'm learning a lot, even as he is teaching. But, but you don't need to think, oh, my word, I'm doing something wrong. I'm deconstructing my faith. I'm pushing against God. I'm, I'm, I'm in sin when you have doubts. Doubts are so normal. They're so natural. Deep questions. I remember as a young Christ follower my freshman year, just moving through in my faith, and I thought, wait, what if the Bible's wrong? What if there are real errors in the Bible? Guys, it sent me into just a tailspin. I thought, I am building all my life on the Bible with all the confidence that I am sitting on the stool in front of you. And if someone can yank it out from underneath me, I and everything I believe and the confidence I live with comes crashing down. And it caused such a tremendous fear in me. And uh, praise God that, that a lot of the research that Jake was talking about, manuscript evidence and this and miracles and New Testament versus other... God used that process to give me greater confidence in the Bible than I even had before I started doubting. I was so thankful. And guys, that's not the only doubt I've had. I could, it's not the point of the conversation, but I've moved through significant doubts that put before the Lord and opened up in community become so helpful and instructive to help me grow in my faith and put me in a stronger place than I was before. So I just think we go wrong when we make someone feel like, oh, so you're denying Jesus. No, you're just having doubts. 
That's such a healthy part. Try raising kids. They doubt everything. It's great. They start asking the why question. Why this? Why that? Well, then why they enter into that? Keep them in community. And I think we walk them through those very scary, unnerving seasons. Mm. And they end up better for it. I feel like one thing we could say more often within the church or faith community is, is I don't know. But I'd love to find out, you know. And so I think sometimes when we're interacting with people who have doubts, it it raises within us an awareness of our own lack of understanding, and that can be scary. And so we can either try to just give them like a lame answer and make it look like we know what we're talking about, or or we're scared of how that might threaten our own, you know, uh, yeah, lack of understanding. And so like, be okay with saying like I don't know, and but I would love to find out the answer to that with you. Yeah, something just seems wrong in our Christian community when we're freer to talk about unbelievably open sexual failure, but we can't talk about doubt. Because, see, that's a whole nother level. That would almost put you out of the faith. And it's like, no, doubt doesn't mean denial. Open up about those sincere questions. Start talking about them, and, and, and there'll be strength and help in that. Um, there's a couple questions on here about uh, kind of the complementarianism, homosexuality. I, I know you're going to hit um, the whole section. Are you talking complementarianism a little bit more in your next section? Uh, just... not, not super in-depth, probably not to the degree to which this question might want clarity. Um, okay, I'll, let me find the – there's a couple different ones. I'll find the best one here in a second. There's a couple on this one. Um, how does uh, predestination or the doctrine of election fit into the defense to the pillar of hell that was explained? Uh, how would we help a friend to understand this pillar of election predestination? How do you start that conversation? Um, how do hell and election go together? And how do you interact with others with, about that? That's why we brought Jake, so that he could, <laughs> he could land a struggle that people have had for 2,000 years. Go ahead yeah. and, and land that in the next minute or two. Uh, um, what, a, what an enormous question. And it's a really good question. So... Uh, I'll we just, could do a whole other breakout. Yeah, on, I'll just yeah. yeah, I'll just say this real simply. So, the doctrine of election. Um, there will be a lot, a lot of us who are in heaven, and will understand more about the nuances of how we got there. Now we know that. Uh, it's only by faith in Jesus Christ that we are saved. Like, we know that. Um, when it comes to, to God's choosing of who will receive that faith, uh, all I'll say is that you probably don't need trem uh, a tremendous amount of clarity exactly on that question in order to still be genuinely saved. For Like, and I'll just say this. I have friends who disagree with my position on election and predestination that I go... I think we're both going to be in heaven together one day, and we're both going to find out how we were a little off on our approach to this specific doctrine. But the one thing we are sure of is that it's only by faith in Christ that we have been saved. And so that's what my faith is in. Um, uh, our understanding of, of, of how God chooses uh, and who chooses God um, is important, but I'm not going to elevate that to a first-rank doctrine. All right, so, so I'm skimming through here. I, I think, because, okay, so what does healthy submission look like in marriage? What's the biblical truth on female preachers? What are women's roles? Maybe just double-click and go, what is complementarianism and why? Or, and, and if people had questions about that or was like, ah, oh, I don't agree with, like, how do we approach that conversation with grace and truth? Mm -hmm. um, 
we're going to get into it just a, a little bit in 1 Corinthians 11. I mean, we're just about to flip the, the page at Salt Church and, and talk about that a tiny bit when it talks about women and head coverings and women prophesying in the church, and we'll, we'll at least broach that subject in 11, I think, 2 through 16. So, um, but not as fully as the question deserves. Guys, this is, this is one that's been talked about a lot, and especially in evangelical circles. Complementarianism, I'm not going to improve upon Jake's definition. I would just say equal and worth different in roles. I mean, that might be the simplest way that you could grab hold of that, that men and women created equal as heirs before God, equal in his eyes, equal in worth, and yet, and this is the offensive part, some, for some, different in roles. God, God has within at least two contexts, the family and within the church, he wants to ex- those roles to be expressed uh, uniquely differently. And um, the opposite position to complementarianism, just, just for your sort of vocabulary, is an egalitarianism. So, so someone who has an egalitarian bent would say, no, 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 the same. You know, for example, a female could be a pastor, a lead elder, or whatever, just the same as a man. There, there shouldn't be any distinction in that. Or in, in, the, in the home, there isn't leadership in the home. It's man or woman. Either could be interchangeably. So complementarianism says that from within the scriptures, we see God giving a unique servant leadership role to uh, the man. And I've, I've spoken on this in different texts or whatever and don't have time to, to, to maybe go too far, but, but God's given a unique leadership role within the home um, that, that's expressed really with a servant role. Um, it doesn't mean that the wife isn't a gifted leader. Interestingly, if you get to know my wife, you'll see that when it comes to leadership, I think her leadership gifting is stronger than my own or whatever. I mean, we have different gifts and spiritual gifts. Yet God has given a unique leadership servant role. And then the scripture also speaks of, within the church, one role that we're clear on, that, that God's saying, I want male leadership to, to, to lead my church forward, and that's the role of elder. Outside of that, any, to, my, to my understanding, and you guys correct me if, you're wrong, if, if you think I'm wrong, but leadership roles within the church should be expressed by men and women who are just gifted in those ways to flourish. And, and at Salt Church, we want to raise up men and women to serve in all those roles. That's sort of the brief, maybe bullet point definition of it. Um. I think what I'd caution is where you're going to get the answer. If you're going to our culture to get the answer on what these roles are, how they're defined, how they're played out, you're getting it from the wrong source. Mm. You have to go back to the word of God in order to get the definition of this and how this is played out in our church, in our lives, in our homes. And so I think the caution is, where are you getting your information from? And it has to line up with the word of God, and then it will be true. But if you're getting this information from what the world defines as a leader or what the world defines as submission or any of that, then you're being led wrong. Get your information from the word of God, and that's the answer. Yeah. A couple resources that might be helpful, like, and Gwen is a thousand percent right. Uh, first resource is read your Bible. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, two, so one's a book. Um, Kevin D. Young wrote a book, and I can't remember. Just Google Kevin D. Young and complementarianism or men and women, and his most recent book on on this subject will come up. He's uh, he's one of my favorite authors. He, he is the king of clarity, um, but also recognizes nuance. And so uh, that's a great resource. If you're going, I don't need more to read. Um, I'd rather listen to something. Uh, if you just Google knowing faith, mm-hmm. 
a generous complementarianism. Uh, Knowing Faith is a podcast put out by uh, an organization called Training the Church. It used to be uh, the Village Church over in uh, Texas. It's a JD uh, English, JT English, um, Kyle Worley and Jen Wilkin, and they they have like a it's a little over an hour podcast specifically on complementarianism and its expression in the church. Yeah, and the church that. Um uh, Jordan and, and Jake and I pastor at Northeast Iowa. Uh, we together with our elder team wrote a paper, Candeo's position on men and women in ministry and the nuances of how complementarian, how complementarianism, how we understand it, and then how it's expressed in, in the giftedness in the church. And that's a short read. In fact, we send it out to people who want to know about that kind of stuff. So that can easily be made available to you. So I think the resources, whether it's audio, whether it's a whole book, or even just a short few page paper on this is how we see it, how we boil it down, and how we see it implemented within the church. Mm-hmm. Come up to any one of us afterwards, and we can fire that your way. I want to say one more thing. It is okay to get questions from our culture, like to be watching culture and be like, why does that happen? Why is that? What do you believe about that? It is okay to look at culture and get questions, but those questions have to be examined by the Word of God. So I had a friend walking through some of this stuff, and she went on this quest to, like, learn all about it and just kept researching and researching and researching. And I was watching her getting scared, and I finally said to her, I I understand why you're trying to figure this out. I understand why you need answers, but you have to make sure that when you're asking the questions, you're bringing that under the Word of God. And if what you're reading doesn't line up under Scripture, then that has to go, not God not the word of God. So it's okay for culture to ask, like to get questions from culture. It's okay that that's where the questions are coming from. Culture can't define them. You have to bring them under the word of God. And if it doesn't line up under the word of God, those have to go. And his answer is what's true.